I am never going to be able to read every single book or read every single Wikipedia post on whatever my technology was. What I have to do instead is let the researchers be the researchers, and then I will be good at everything else. And so one of the things I did at a certain point was acquire an MBA because I wanted to be even better at the business part of it. I purposely never tried to give the impression that I know anything about technology, but I do know a thing or two about how to market technology and how to build a business on a technology. Thomas Schmidt is the Head of Technology Transfer at University of Southern Denmark, or SDU. And he joins us on Talking Tech Transfer not only to tell us how, with an MA in Marketing and Communication, he ended up in Tech Transfer, but also to discuss the importance of time management skills, the challenges and opportunities of being a regional university, and why senior leaders are the ones who really ought to consider becoming RTTP certified. Thomas, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Sherry. Good to be here. To start with, can you give me an overview of the tech transfer operation at SDU and perhaps some headline figures if you have them? Sure. So I've been listening to a wonderful podcast hearing stories about all these great universities in uh, Columbia and MIT and so forth. We are very much at the other end, so very much a small office. So we get around 40 disclosures every year. We file about 12, 15 patents. And on a good year, we'll do eight deals maybe. Half of those will be spin-outs. So very much a small office compared to some of the other people you've been talking to. We try and get involved as much as possible we can with our researchers. So if they need help with an MTA, we'll do that. If they need help finding a company that they can do a joint funding application for, we'll do that. And so we're very much trying to be engaged as much as possible with our researchers, not just focus purely on the invention disclosures and the patents. I mean, all everyone can be, as you say, MIT or Columbia. I think I've had some other ones on the podcast as well. So you are still in good company, I think. <laughs> yes, that's true. And so we're also probably should say we're a regional university. So we're very much focused on the region that we are a part of. And outside of our main campus in Odense, we also have five other campuses. And so the university is about 20,000 students and some 2,500 researchers. And the majority of our students are at the social sciences and humanities. It's not that we're that tech heavy, really. And we're also the tech transfer office for the local hospital operator, including our affiliated university hospital. So in that sense, we're trying to work with units outside of our campus just to make sure that we have enough of a deal flow and enough of a portfolio that it makes sense to have the setup that we have. Amazing. As you say, you are regional, you are on the island of Finn, which is in the middle of the country, really, Central Island. Does that pose any challenges being slightly more remote? Obviously, you have Odense, a fairly big city nearby. So Odense is the third largest city in the country. And obviously, it has what you would expect from a city of that stature. But really, the remarkable thing is that there isn't that much other high tech around the area, around the region. And so I think something like 85% of the companies in our region are SMEs, and it's not high-tech SMEs, right? So it's small production companies. What that means for us is we think internationally from the very first day. Jokingly, sometimes I say that our life science marketing starts in Copenhagen and then goes into continental Europe and the US from there on. So we always think internationally, we're always thinking about where companies can be interesting from, and the majority of the time, that company isn't placed in our neighborhood. Uh, so that's one of the most markedly 
differences that we see when I look at some of my peers that are placed in Copenhagen or in London or in Berlin or Munich. Are there any opportunities that this presents? I think that it does mean that the business angels that are engaged, the investors that are engaged, the companies that are interested in working closely with the university, we have a very close relationship with them. Obviously, it's a smaller community. It also means it's a closer community. I think in general, over time, my experience has been we just have less friction with the people we do a lot of deals with because we see them at the same events. We go to the same meetings. We work with the same people. So it is a smaller community with the companies and the investors we engage with locally. And it just means that from both sides, really, you kind of have to behave because you want to come back and you want to do more deals. That's the positive influence on it. It also means that if there is someone in the region that we don't know, but some of our licensees or people we talk with frequently know, then it's very easy for us to connect into new industries with new people, again, because it is smaller. So that's one of the advantages. You said you have to think internationally from the get-go. Do your spin-outs tend to keep a base nearby or do they up and move as soon as they can? We'll probably come back to it, but for Odin said there's a robotics cluster. And for the robotics spin-outs that we create and are part of LSTU, there's a gravity towards Odinson nationally. And so obviously those companies stay in Odinson. For life science companies, it's almost vice versa. So the majority of the life science activities are placed around Copenhagen. Then the spin-offs that we create in life sciences, they might have an address in Odinson. They might even have a lab space at the university, but at some time we'll move their activity. And we've had a couple of instances where we've set up spin-outs with international investors where they start off in a different country. Talking of money investors, you mentioned business angels as well. Is it generally challenging to access capital, talent as well, where you are? I think talent is more difficult than capital. I think nationally, we know who we need to know. We know the investors, the seed investors, the early stage investors. There's a very well-functioning business angel networks in Denmark. So if we have a case that's relevant for a business angel, we know who to pitch to. There might be competition for that capital. We might not get all the investments that we would like to, but that's the nature of the game. So the access isn't that difficult. And I think there's more and more international investors who are looking towards the Scandinavian countries. We certainly see much more activity from venture capitalists approaching us and asking if we can have a sit down look at the portfolio. The talent is a different thing. It's much more difficult, I think, for us to attract and to retain professional entrepreneurs, C-level people with industry experience that are willing to engage and work with the spin-outs. It's changing. It has changed. Certainly over the last 10 years, it's become much more interesting and attractive for industry professionals to leave their position in a corporation and move into either consultancy or as a C-level and typically as a first full-time CEO in a company. But I think talent overall is more difficult for us to attract in Odense than it is capital. What is your view of the Danish ecosystem in general? How does it compare to Scandinavian peers or even European peers in general? Overall, I think we're well off. I think there's a lot of sectors where we have things that are certainly up to the same standard as when I talk to my peers in Europe. And also some of the incubators and clusters we have at an international level where we're also we're seeing companies and venture capital coming to Denmark. So I think that, that overall we're well off. More once more, right? So I'm always looking to get more engagement, to have more of our companies, more of our projects succeed, more of our researchers be able to attract funding. I wish the government played a larger role. I wish the government would be more active in terms of setting the agenda. At the moment, we're seeing more and more as the industry and the universities and private actors that are creating accelerators, creating incubators. That's based on partly their own 
interests and what would suit either a university or a company or a industry association, which is fine. But we're really lacking when I see some of the countries that have national innovation strategies, especially in Asia, this is really prolific. There's a lot of Asian countries that have a national innovation strategy, and then the universities and the companies then use that to both find out where the funding should be, but also what are the hotspots. And I think that's something I would have liked to see more of in Denmark. Has that always been true? Has the government never really been interested in that? I think it's changed. So the legislation that's the foundation for doing tech transfer in Denmark is from the year 2000. In those first kind of five, seven, eight years, the government and the ministry was very active in kind of supporting and nurturing and providing funding for the creation of the profession, if you will. And kind of seems to have moved on to other things. Other things have become more interesting. It used to be that everything should be clean tech, and now everything should be climate. It's the theme that fits. That's kind of where we get pushed up under. It's not that we have our own strategy and space. So I think the government used to be more active, at least the ministry was, that they are at the moment. That's a shame. I suppose 2008 also, well, that caused the crisis everywhere. So maybe after that, they cut back on whatever they could cut back. Well, certainly in tech transfer, I remember you could almost feel that the financial crisis was coming because everyone slowed down, and especially companies investing in R&D from universities slowed down very, very fast in 2007, 2008, but came back online again. And I think it was the same thing with the pandemic that we're kind of still in the middle of, is that companies, at least, and venture capitalists realize that there is the long view in terms of R&D investments. The financial crisis and the corona pandemic are obviously major events. But on the long-term perspective, it doesn't stop investment in R&D and it doesn't stop venture capitalists creating new companies. Yeah, that's very true. They are blips. Well, they are very big blips, <laughs> but they are still just blips on long-term scales. Yes. As you mentioned, there is a large robotics cluster. You also have historical shipyards. Yes. SDU itself sat two robotics spin-outs by, by Teradyne for large sums, university robots and mobile industrial robots. Are you doing anything specific to play into those strengths? Yes, we are. The robotics cluster comes out of working with robotics and finding industrial applications. In one instance, it was at the shipyard in terms of welding. And we have these first or second generation, whatever you want to call them, spin-outs in robotics from SDU that grew very big because of the entrepreneurs, because of the investors and their hard work and the technology and got acquired by Teradyne. This kind of led everyone to look at SDU and realize there was a potential there. And so you had a lot of talent where we don't see talent otherwise come to own. So we had a lot of venture and seed investors come. And a lot of our students and some of our staff as well uh, found that spin-outs and spin-offs in the robotics sector was much more attractive than pursuing other careers. And so we've able to kind of retain that feeling of a cluster. It's been very well supported by the municipality, by the city of Odense, who's really gone in and supported, obviously with the university but also in making sure that there's a physical space, there's a robotics hub now, and there's a team with the city that helps promote investments in robotic spin-outs. SDU obviously is very engaged on that agenda as well. These two companies were acquired a couple of years ago, and we're kind of seeing the next robotic spin-outs where they're getting up to, you know, B-round investments, 30, 50 people. So seeing the next wave of these kind of robotic spin-outs also forming. At the moment, it doesn't look like it was one-offs with these initial large acquisitions by Teradyne. Fingers crossed. It's fantastic. Yes. How difficult or not is it generally to score exits? I think it's a difficult period. Yes. <laughs> I think any data would support that. It's very, very interesting for me, kind of a long-term perspective, to have the robotics industry and the robotics hub in Odense as a 
benchmark or as a control group to everything else that we do. Because we can see in the robotics area that inventors and investors come to us. We see that it's easy for us to engage the researchers to become entrepreneurs and create spin-outs. And where that might be much more difficult in all the other sectors that we work in. We can see that in robotics, all other things being equal, it's easier for us to license or exit our spin-outs. Whereas in other sectors, it's more difficult. But it is difficult, period. It's a hard job. It's a difficult job. And there's so many people involved in it. If you're talking about a company, Universal Robots, at the point where it got acquired by Teradyne, the university had already exited its equity position. And that company's success is up to its founders and the people working in it. The technology transfer office played a minor role in its incorporation. And the, really the success has been the collaboration between the company as it grew into 200, 300 people and the continued collaboration with the department that they came out of, with graduate students getting work, with sponsored research, with researchers going back and forth. That's been the really, really wonderful success story of those spin-up companies. Oh, amazing. I want to move back to money for a second as well. Denmark is quite unique in that you have foundations which play a large role in research funding. Big companies that might be known as Nova Nordisk Foundation or Lindbergh Foundation. Can you tell me a little bit more about this setup and how it shapes how you work? I'm probably not an expert on the business history of Denmark, but it's actually not that uncommon that a lot of the larger companies are owned by foundations, and usually those are family-owned foundations. You also see companies like Danfoss, Grundfos, and Lego as well is foundation-owned. And what that means is that there is a foundation that has a philanthropic task or mission, if you will. One of the ways they do that is through funding research and activities and programs that are supportive of research. And so obviously the No Noise Foundation, as an example, it funds a lot of research all over the world, but especially in Denmark and especially in life science. It's really remarkable how much money that goes into the groups that they fund and the centers that they create. But they also have their venture arm, which invests internationally. That venture arm has a seed investment group, which is now international, used to be focused more on Scandinavia. It's been the seed investor in a lot of Danish life science spin-outs. And they've also created something called the Bioinnovation Institute, which is a biotech accelerator. Top down, it was a program that the foundation talked to a lot of people in the ecosystem about and then set up this program, which is now its own entity, so it's separate from the Noise Foundation, but really a world-class incubator in life sciences. Odense is maybe one and a half hours, two hours away by train to Copenhagen. So it's easy for us to motivate our researchers to go there, whether that's attending pitch training or training events, or whether that's pitching projects to the board and trying to get into some of their programs. It's wonderful to have these kind of ecosystem close to us and the foundations, both Lundbeck and Ornorsk and others, play a major role in creating and supporting these ecosystems. I guess that goes back to what you said earlier about the government taking more of a hands-off approach, they almost don't need to because the foundations are taking care of it almost. Or the foundations are doing it because the government Because the government. <laughs> so when I see similar accelerators and similar incubators or initiatives, both in continental Europe and in Israel also, some of them are run by the government agencies. It certainly seems like my colleagues have their government agencies more active in this space in some countries rather than what we have in Denmark. You are also working with Spinout Denmark. Can you tell me a bit more about this organization and what it's trying to achieve? Sure. So Spinout Denmark is actually another example of a foundation. So Velux company is owned by a foundation called the Velum Foundation. And the Velum Foundation decided that in addition to 
giving out grants for excellent researchers and excellent research groups. They also wanted to support the ecosystem or the support system behind all these researchers. And so we came up with a program together with them that really focused on creating spin-outs outside of the life sciences space. So in natural sciences, technology, IT, energy, cybersecurity, software, everything that's in that ballpark. And it's a 10 million euro program over five years. So it's substantial enough oomph that you can really feel it and that we can do something with it. And what's remarkable is that we've been able to create a program that all eight Danish universities are involved in. So it's the whole sector working together. And I think that's very, very unique and very, very beneficial to us, both individually as officers, but also as a sector that we're able to show that we can work together on a common goal. And so in Spinoff's Denmark, which is a five-year program, we do three things. We do capacity building and training, and we're investing in new staff, and we're investing in joint teaching, shared experiences, exchange of staff between officers. We have a translational postdoc program, which I personally am really looking forward to seeing the benefits of where we're funding postdoc positions. But we're doing it in such a way that they can still publish the research they're doing while at the same time working on their project becoming a good spin-out case. Traditionally, we've seen a lot of projects in deep tech where it was typically a group leader and a PhD student. And when the PhD student finished, a lot of those projects would have a hard time finding new funding, finding new people to become attractive. So I think translational postdoc position is really a sweet spot in terms of translating tech science into spin-outs. They come fully funded and they come with a bench fee and they come with an overhead. So it's absolutely free for the department heads, which I think is something that have also previously been difficult is to convince department heads to, if we can only find some of the funding, they have to submit a lot of the funding themselves. But here we really have a, a wonderful program. There's going to be business mentors and business developers from the TTO involved in those postdocs as well, and they'll have a training program. The third leg and the third part of our program is building the ecosystem. So we're developing mentor corpses for the universities that don't have that. We'll have a entrepreneur residence program running nationally. And we will come up with some way of building a platform for engaging with the ecosystem. We haven't quite figured out exactly what that looks like. It's anything from a message board to a Teams meeting, some kind of space where we can engage with consultants, with investors, with industry at a much higher degree than we are now. And again, the benefit being that it's all eight universities you're engaging with at once. So you don't have to go knock on every single TTO's door. We want to have a platform of some kind where we can have a national dialogue with our community and our ecosystem. That's fantastic. I don't think I've come across anywhere where all the universities in the country actually manage to band together and pull this off. Admittedly, it is a small group. It is. It's a small country, but, but it's still impressive. It's funny. If you've done this for a while, you kind of see the flow of the tide, really. So in the beginning, and this was before I started in TT, everyone went to the same international trips to see what other people were doing, trying to figure out what this whole business was. And then we had a period where everyone was really trying to set themselves aside. So the TT officers weren't speaking a lot to each other, weren't really engaging, were trying to become the best version they could be for their own university. And now we're in a period where we can see so much benefit from working together. Obviously, we're competing for the same venture funding, for the same companies, licenses, and so forth. But that's fine. That's kind of the merits and the way the business is. But the colloquial feeling between the officers, I think, is something that's been the basis and the trust there is between the heads of TTOs has been the basis for, on which we could be able to create programs such as Spinoff Denmark. 
that's certainly something that I hear over and over again, people mentioning. And if you listen to the podcast, you'll know this as well. Everyone is talking about how collaborative this is, and it doesn't really matter if it's MIT or SDU or Chalmers. They all talk to each other, and they're going to share methodologies and how they approach things and best practices. You often hear people say that tech transfer is a people's business. It's about relations. It's about people rather than technology. I think sometimes that's meant as when we're negotiating or interacting between university and industry or investors, but it's also people's business in terms of the engagement there is within the community with how we were willing to share with the we see ourselves as colleagues rather than competitors. When you're saying it's a people's business, I think of this notion of even internationally just being very, very open compared to other industries and sectors that I've heard of. How does your spin-out portfolio engagement for researchers fare when it comes to equality, diversity, and inclusion. Do you have numbers? Do you track those things? It's easy for me to track one because I have a small portfolio and two because the numbers, unfortunately, are very, very small. So I know we're on par with our faculty population overall, but it's still, in terms of the talent mass available, it's unfortunately much, much too small. I don't buy into the fact that it's a difficult conversation. It's a conversation that has to be had. I think the solutions are very difficult, finding out how to do this in a way that is equal to all. I think some of the programs we're seeing, I forget, but coming out of Washington, Kirsten Lloyd also mentioned it, is wonderful. Yes, exactly. I looked at that and thought, how can we replicate it? Can we get inspired by it? And I think we have to keep doing stuff like that. Seeing the programs that work and finding the programs that work and then seeing how can we adapt them to our own setting. It is something that's difficult to work with. And I'm reminded of my communications department is going to hate me, but this spring, we were having a discussion on what to put on our LinkedIn profile over the summer. So I said, let's put these five cases on. The five cases I selected were purposely all female inventors. I didn't want us to flash these are all female inventors. Let's just put these five cases on because one of the things that I think does work is role models and it's showing the examples and leading by example. I don't know if it's positive treatment, but at least it was kind of a purposeful effort to promote these five cases with this particular type of inventors. And even my communication team said, you know, shouldn't we have some some diversity in terms of gender? Shouldn't we have a couple of male inventors or junior inventors? Or So this notion that everything has to be equal is almost tripping us in terms of showing the good examples. So I think that you'll see this all over the place, but it doesn't mean you should stop working and working towards more equality, and whether that's in terms of race or, or gender or whatever it is. Yeah, I think you're right. The balance isn't always about having a 50-50% in everything you do, because that would be impossible. Yes. But yes, highlighting five women inventors, because last time you probably highlighted five (laughs) male inventors. That's balance. Yes, I think over time we'll be fine. Yeah. How does your own office fare when it comes to diversity? I have a vacancy and seven business developers, and I have two female business developers. Okay. The only way is up. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Do you run any internship programs in your office right now, whether or not they are focused on EDI? No, we don't. I've had kind of, gosh, when you listen to Aaron Herskowitz and his 35 graduate students, you become (laughs) envious, but I don't know what I would do with 35 people. I have mixed experiences running what you would just call student programs or graduate programs. One of the things is we shouldn't underestimate the amount of effort it requires from your staff and from the head of the TTO. Because graduate students, in my experience, by definition, they might have the tools, but they have no idea how to apply them. At least it's a very small chance that they will know how to apply them. So you really have to help 
you're not just helping them learn the traits of technology transfer, you're also learning them how to engage in a workplace setting. This is something where you have to make sure you have the time for it. And if you don't, because you're full of risk disclosures and casework, then you don't have the time for it. I realize this is kind of biting your own tail because then you also don't have access to that help that might help you get those piles of evidence goes down, right? What I would love to have is kind of graduate program where I could also do some of the analysis work. So look at the metrics, do some of the more long-term planning and help with, with some of that stuff. But obviously, if you're a graduate student and looking at technology transfer, what you really want to do is casework. So you have to make sure that you have a program that's appealing to your student mass so you can recruit the ones that are most suitable for your program. So we don't have any program at the moment. I've had varied success with myself. We'll see. Maybe we'll take another go at it next year or in the fall here. Well, speaking of recruitment, you are also the chair of the HTTP peer review panel, and you obviously hold HTTP certification yourself. Is that something that you encourage staff to pursue or even list as advantageous when you do look for, well, you are looking for a new person at the moment? I would love to have someone with an RCTP certification apply for my vacancy or for a job with our office. It's something I'm obviously deeply engaged with. It's something I care a lot about. In our office, it's voluntary if you want to do the certification, whether it's RCTP, CLP, or anything else. But I think it's something where when you have that body of work, where you've been with the office for three years, you've done a number of cases, you've done some cases that have some real impact, then I think it's appropriate to look at whether you are right for certification. If you are, then I think that's a wonderful thing to get certified and to help spread the notion that this is indeed a profession. And one of the trademarks of a profession is that it has some kind of certification. So one thing is with my own staff, when they are at that point, then there's usually a discussion about it. And I probably speak enough about RTTP in my home office that they know of it. I don't have to do a lot of promotion there. What I really think this is important is as a If you are in a position of whether you're a head of technology transfer or a senior business developer, but if you are in a position of influence in terms of being a role model for people coming into the profession, and if you care about our profession and indeed the notion that it is a profession, then I think you should get a RTTP certification. You should help build and promote our profession. And maybe you have a lot of acronyms after your name already. Maybe you don't need another one. Maybe you don't think that what you do should be certified, or maybe you think you should get the certification for free. But I think you have a responsibility as a role model to ensure that people coming out into our profession can see that this is indeed a profession and it is something where you can get a certification. And so for that reason, I think it's actually in our wider TT community, the senior staff, it's the head of TTOs. Those are the people I think should be really looking at certification more than anything. That's interesting. I quite like that as a, yeah, being the role model to new people coming into the profession. You have been in tech transfer for a while, as you said. You've been at SDU since 2013. You worked at Aarhus University for seven years before that. How did you end up in tech transfer? By pure accident. And I don't think I would get a job in tech transfer if I applied today. So I have a master's degree in communication. And I was working part-time during my graduate school. And my thesis was taking a long time, is probably putting it mildly. So I was very, very motivated to get a job at the end of my studies. And so one of the things I found was a ad for a maternity cover with some office. I didn't know what they were doing at Aarhus University. But they were talking something about marketing, and I thought, well, Aarhus is a nice city, so I'll apply for that. And I didn't get the job, 
But I had obviously spoken a lot about marketing and communications, which was my major. And I did my thesis on marketing of international degree programs. So it was kind of related. And so they said, would you like a short-term contract to help us build our marketing effort, our website, our presentations, and so forth? And so I did that. And as I remember it, I did that fairly quickly in terms of my contract. And they said, can you look at this case? And they said, can you then look at this case? And that's kind of <laughs> how it rolled. I did an internship at uh, University of Illinois, Chicago. And there I met Dave Colley, who has been on a number of chairs and committees in autumn. And he's now in Puerto Rico and has worked with Chile a lot. So he actually was kind of my introduction rather by accident. So I knew the word technology transfer and I had talked with David about bringing him over to do some exchanges with the university. But it was pure accident. And as I said, I, a master's degree in communications, I might get an interview today, but I don't think I would get the job. I quite like that. You got into tech transfer by applying with a completely different CV and a completely different idea of what the job might be. That is amazing. But again, it comes back to the, what is it we do in tech transfer? It's about communication. It's about people. It's about culture. It's a humanities degree is certainly very relevant in terms of being able to analyze and comprehend large amounts of text or information and finding the key elements there. I remember sitting in a meeting very early on with a patent attorney and a professor in optics or something like that. And the patent attorney was a PhD in the same field as the professor. And they, after two hours, still couldn't understand each other. And that's when I kind of realized I am never going to be able to read every single book or read every single Wikipedia post on whatever my technology was. What I have to do instead is let the researchers be the researchers, and then I will be good at everything else. And so one of the things I did at a certain point was acquire an MBA because I wanted to be even better at the business part of it. I've purposely never tried to give the impression that I know anything about technology, but I do know a thing or two about how to market technology and how to build a business on a technology. That does remind me of, you mentioned him before as well, Orin Herskowitz, who was talking about having a shelf full of four dummies books because he came from languages. I had a lot of life science projects and I didn't know anything about cells. So one of the things I did was I looked at what textbooks are you required to read to become a nurse. And so I read all those textbooks, but it doesn't stick yeah. right? because you're not using it for anything. It was an attempt to do something. The way I thought about it is I'm never going to get a degree in every single area, technical field that I work in. So let me be good at doing what I do. And then at the end of the day, the investors, the industry people, they want to talk to the researchers. They don't want to talk to the TTO. The TTO is the facilitator. It's not the endpoint. Yeah. What brought you to SDU then? Uh, around 2011, 2012, we had a year without a head of TTO at Aarhus University. And I was asked as the group leader for the business developers to be part of the interim management. So I got a taste for management and thought that was really interesting and something that I like to do. I had done enough cases at that point. I was much more interested in the organizational setup, in strategizing, long-term planning, trying to influence, see what you could do with technology transfer for the university as a whole. And so there came an opportunity at SDU, and I knew the head of the office, and I called him and asked him, why is your job available? And he said that they had asked him to stop doing casework, and he didn't want to do that. He stepped down and became a business developer in the team that I then took over on. And at that point, SDU was also building a student incubator. So I also worked on the very first steps of trying to build a student incubator, get this, all the relationships with the people in the ecosystem going, hire a person to run the student incubator. That was also very, very interesting, something I hadn't 
done in Aarhus, but something that led to using a different set of skills than the business development skills. So that's really why I took the switch from Aarhus. It wasn't because Aarhus isn't a lovely university or it's a great group of people, but it was just this opportunity to sit at the end of the table and really try to influence things on the long term. Too good to say no to. Exactly. What have you learned in tech transfer so far and what would you say to someone starting out today? Gosh, this is your only career. This is everything you've learned from it, really. But it's not what you think. It's not about knowing the patent code. It's not about sending emails to every single potential licensee in the world. It's a people's business. It's about interactions. It's about understanding the context of the researchers that you're working with. What is their situation? One of the key things, really, that I think people struggle with is time management. So we have a lot more cases than we can handle. And if we ever bother, we can just walk down to the lab or walk up to the lab wherever it is and start talking to researchers who will tell you about all the wonderful things that they do and maybe that could become a case if you look into it or maybe you have a couple of old cases lying around that you wish you'd done more for so you can always spend more time you can always do more to improve your standard operating procedures to read about all the wonderful projects going on around the world but you'll lose yourself in that process so really time management is one of the key things that i try to talk to my staff when they first onboard this is a platform where you have a unique opportunity to create your own job and to really influence and make sure that wonderful research, perhaps, maybe, also turns into products and services. But if you're not careful, this is going to swallow you whole. And I say this to junior people coming in. I say this to senior people coming in. And often they will take three, four, five months. And some afternoon, I'll have a chat with them in the office and they'll say, I had no idea. <laughs> what you said, but now I kind of understand. So really, I think that's one of the untold key successes of our businesses, being able to do proper time management. If you had a magic wand, is there anything you would change about tech transfer as it is today? I think it varies very much from country to country, but I do think this notion of tiers between whether you're a researcher at a university or whether you're an administrative employee lends to this notion that one is better than the other. That is something that in my past, I've struggled to come to terms with and something that once in a while it rears its ugly head and you have to see it for what it is. There has to be some kind of agreement that there is mutual benefit from specialists working with researchers and then together help get things from lab to market. Whenever I kind of see that notion that one thing is better than the other, I think that's something that I wish wasn't there. That makes sense. It is time for my most evil question. And if you've been listening to the podcast, you knew it was coming. What is your favorite spin out? So I've heard people talk about this as you can't choose between your children. Yeah. Well, our children aren't necessarily all perfect all the time, are they? So <laughs> <laughs> I will say, so you can have lots of different types of spin outs, but I have a preference for a certain type of spin out, a personal preference. It doesn't influence how we do business. Yeah, sure. But I have a preference for a certain type of spin outs. And I'm reminded of, of a company called Particle 3D, which I think is a great example. So Particle 3D is a company that we spun out a couple of years ago, and they 3D print ceramic structures, and they use a fatty acid matrix to create bio-ink. And they can use that to produce very strong materials. And some of those materials can have medical applications. And indeed, in their earlier days, their slogan was, we print bone. One of the things they can actually do is print precise pieces of bone for surgeons and clinicians to use when they're operating rather than standard measurement materials that then have to be adapted. 
So you can have a scan of a jaw or a knee or something that you want to replace, and you can 3D print a material that the body will naturally adapt to that is the perfect fit to what you're trying to do. So one of the things I like, first of all, it's created by a group leader and two graduate students. The group leader then stays at the university and helps do other wonderful stuff and is creating his next spin-out now. But the graduate students created their own job. We see both the group leader staying on and being an important part of the culture at that department, but also the grad students creating their own job. And that's a wonderful thing that our spin-offs can do is help with job employment, especially in our region. The second thing is that the company now is teaming up with their old group and with other groups and with the hospital to do sponsored research and to do joint funding applications. So you get that flow back to the university, both in terms of data of research that you can publish on, but also in terms of funding for the group that they're coming out of. And then the third thing is that they are very creative in the way that they try to create income for the company. So one is that they're selling their product already for research use while they're getting the clinical adaptation of their product ready and the regulatory issues solved. And so they're trying to create a revenue stream just from research use only, which I think is wonderful for this company. They've raised money in the UK which not all our spin-offs by far do. And I think one of the reasons they did that was it was difficult for the Danish VCs to figure out whether it was a medical device company or whether it was a technology company. And they worked with a London-based VC firm for their Series A and were very successful in that. They've been very creative in trying to solve and figure out how to get a revenue stream. And I think that's also one of the things our spin-offs have to be willing to adapt and overcome and be ingenious in terms of where do they get their funding from, especially if the traditional venture capital is the right path for them. Particle 3D is the company I would highlight from our portfolio. That is a very worthy choice. I hadn't come across that one yet, but I will definitely go and check that out because that sounds brilliant. We are almost at the end. Is there anything else that we haven't spoken about that you want people to know? I'd like to pluck the uh, Nordic Innovation Fair happening on the 21st of September in Copenhagen. This is the first year where we have a Nordic event where all the universities in Denmark and invited universities from Norway and Sweden are actually pitching their technologies at a trade fair. And we're hoping that will be widened to as many universities as want to participate in this event from the Nordic countries. It's another example where we have a donation from the Nordic Norsk Foundation to make this possible. And so sponsors, and we have a great collaboration with the Danish Federation of Industries in organizing this event. But the previous years, it was called the Danish IP Fair. And this was something that we came up with it five or six years ago at our National Technology Transfer Organization's annual meeting. We were frustrated that it wasn't the ideal event for us to pitch and promote our technologies. We were always having to be part of something else. And so we just said, let's just do it ourselves. And we worked with sponsors and we worked with the Danish Federation of Industries and they were very happy to work with us. So there was a need, if you will, out there. The first year we presented 100 technologies and had 300 participants. So it became an immediate success, but it really goes to show kind of what you can do as a national association, even if you're in a small country or a small organization, we not that many offices. The resourcefulness of People working in tech transfer is remarkable if you set your minds to something. So we've created this event that started off as a Danish event and is now becoming a Nordic event in Copenhagen in September where all the Danish universities are presenting, I think, 120, 130 cases that are being pitched to industry and venture capitalists. Amazing. Where can people go to find out more about this? Is there a website? This is uh, nordicinnovationfair.com, I think. Otherwise, I'm sure Google will lead you to it. If- <laughs> <laughs> 
Amazing. Thomas, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been fascinating to learn more. You have been my first Danish guest, as you may well be aware. And it's been fascinating to learn more about STU and Denmark as well. It's my absolute pleasure. And it's a wonderful podcast. I hope you find other people from Denmark and from all over the world who are willing to take part. Talking Tech Transfer is hosted by me, Thierry Hales. It is produced by Global University Venturing, a Morsonia Limited publication. You can find us at globaluniversityventuring.com, on LinkedIn as Global University Venturing, or on Twitter at GU Venturing. Our sound engineer is Mark Chatterley from In-Ear Production. You can find them on inearproduction.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an interview. We'd also really love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or if you share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps us grow our audience. You can also reach out to me directly with feedback. Just email thehelis at globaluniversityventuring.com. That is T-H-E-L-E-S at globaluniversityventuring.com. Until next time, have a great week, everyone. Goodbye. Thank you.